Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have Mary Munro. Mary is currently the Clinical Effectiveness Lead for Drug Harm Reduction at the Scottish Ambulance Service. And she's got a pretty wide and varied background. She's got some experience in research, done some education, worked in the third sector, and has been involved in clinical mental health nursing previously as well. So a really kind of wide, broad-based background. She's based up in the Grampian area, and she's here to chat to us about the kind of interface, I guess, between the emergency 999 services and dealing with day-to-day problems of drugs and addiction. Mary, thank you so much for coming on to chat to us. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. So I guess probably the place to start is to try and look at the scale of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's something that's definitely been in the public eye over the last, I would say, six, seven months especially. And the reason for that around drugs especially is that Scotland is now the title of being the drug death capital of Europe. And year on year, this is a trend within Scotland. So since 1996 is when the Scottish government started to keep details and statistics on drug-related deaths. And at that point, we had 244 documented drug-related deaths. And last year, unfortunately, we had 1,264. So we've almost had 1,000 deaths more per year since we started taking these statistics in 1996. So the scale is absolutely massive. And year on year, it's just sadly increased and increased. It's a phenomenal, I mean, it's nearly, what, 500% worth of increase. Those numbers are easy to trip off the tongue, but actually the impact that has on, on other lives, on families, on social networks, on everything else is is phenomenal. Absolutely. And statistically, they say for every one person that's affected by drugs or alcohol, there's five other people affected by that. Like you said, if it's in their, their friends or their family or services that are involved with that person. So, I mean, I can't do maths off the top of my head, but that would be a phenomenal amount of people and it's affecting more and more people. And I think that's probably a point to make as well that back in 1996 it was primarily opiate use or heroin use and last year's statistics it was a poly substance so what I mean by that is multiple drugs we had benzodiazepines we had pregabalin we had cannabinoids we had opiates um, illicit drugs drugs off the internet drugs coming from the dark web it's just astronomical the problem and probably why there's a focus on the scottish ambulance service and police scotland as well because they are two services that are frontline and have great opportunities to try and help prevent further drug-related deaths now i guess dealing with such a big change is this just because we're now looking for it and reporting it and pulling out the numbers or is your feeling that there is actually a genuine increase in both use and harm I would say a definite increase in both increase in drug use, but also the increase in the risk. And it would be probably the last three or four years, particularly in Scotland, we have had huge, huge issues in terms of illicit benzodiazepines and 
we're finding that these are coming from all over the world. They're not pure benzodiazepines, which they were previously. They are cut with all sorts of different substances, including fentanyl, including other opiate-based drugs. And it's devastating in terms of the drug community. These drugs are also 20 times more potent than diazepam, but it's very hard to tell because they look absolutely identical to diazepam tablets. So some people think that they're buying this pure benzodiazepine, but actually they're buying something that's cut with all sorts of rubbish and actually increases the risk of overdose. So we've seen a huge increase of that in the last around two or three years. And sadly, again, we wondered during the pandemic if that would still be the case. But certainly within the north of Scotland, where I cover, it seems to be still a huge, huge issue. It's not so much the opiate-based medications, it's these illicit drugs that are coming from online. And the person doesn't even know what's in these substances that they're taking, which is highly, highly risky. Indeed. And it seems sometimes as though there's a a cultural element to this in that you you look at things like train spotting and there's almost a kind of glamorization of drug use and the drug culture. And I guess that to an extent that's true, but it it kind of masks some of the negative aspects of it that get forgotten about. Totally agree. And I think certainly since I've started in Scottish Ambulance Service, the amount of people that are affected by drugs and people who are using drugs, that I suppose that group of individuals, shall we say, has that's completely changed. So you've got people who have had, again, this is probably linked to some of the drug-related deaths, but people on prescribed medication. So um, they've been prescribed a, an opiate-based medication, for instance, dihydrocodone, and that's perhaps not been managed well. They've been stopped their prescription and they've had to seek drugs elsewhere. So there's there's people who have always used drugs. There's people who have used recreational drugs like you said that kind of glamorized aspect of it or you know everybody uses a bit of cocaine or everybody smokes cannabis that kind of mentality but we've also seen these people who have never used illicit drugs before but because of prescribed medications they're also now involved with illicit drug use and it's I would say no group of people are unaffected by this and that definitely a trend that we've definitely seen a change in since 1996, because predominantly then, as I said, that was really just, you know, your heroin or your ecstasy or your rave drugs. But now it's pretty much anybody and everybody um, using all sorts of different drugs. So it's, it's a massive challenge in Scotland right now. Yeah, there's been a, a huge change in the culture. And it's pretty mm-hmm. horrifying to think that we are, in a sense, providing some of the what used to be called gateway drugs and that it we're definitely having an effect back in the day it makes me sound horrendously older but when i first started playing in the in the pre-hospital sphere it used mm-hmm. to be that you would arrive and you'd end up in a, a fairly rundown part of a, a fairly rundown bit of town and there would be somebody who wasn't breathing on the floor and was blue bit of vomit and you'd bag them for a little bit put some naloxone in, they'd jump up, try and hit you, and then disappear off with the police. And that was kind of the circle of life, and, and that was that. I'm guessing that there was more to it than that at the time. What were we doing in 96 when we sort of first started looking at these stats? I mean, I think at that time, it was still a challenge. I think it was still a challenge, but there was less polysubstance use. So, like you say, when you're administering the naloxone, it was generally to good effect because often that's the only substance that that person had taken so in my eyes actually that was probably the right thing how that was responded to in terms of naloxone that was done well the issue now is that 
people are using so many different drugs, the ambulance service are administering naloxone, it's not always to affect because they're not entirely sure what that person has taken. So we're having to look at other ways of how are we going to support people because previously, as you said, you turned up to a house, it was a drug overdose, chances are it was an opiate, now we're not entirely sure. So we need to look at other things, primarily why myself um, and my two colleagues, Lauren and Julie, are in our roles to really try and look at that in terms of naloxone can't just be the start and end, that can be a part of it, but it's not the, the full picture in terms of what the ambulance service can do. I guess one of the frustrations was always that you'd go out often to addresses that you knew or you'd been to previous overdoses at that sort of address and it felt as though we were just patching over the cracks rather than actually having any role in fixing the problem. Do you think that there is a role for the ambulance service in trying to get ahead of the curve a bit? I absolutely do. I'd never had experience of the ambulance service before I came into this role and I think when I seen the post I, I genuinely was really excited about it because I think Ambulance Service, Police Scotland are two massive services who will actually see somebody in overdose more than their CPNs, more than mental health nurses, more than maybe not A&E departments, but, you know, not far off. And I think they're in a very unique position to really provide that connection to services. And I think that's one of the big things we are trying to do in our current roles is, is to train staff in terms of their own knowledge about what is available because through our training with the, with the take-home naloxone and around harm reduction, a lot of staff don't know what, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know, as they say. So we've been doing a lot of work in terms of telling each individual area what services are available. We have put in place non-fatal overdose pathways in each region, so therefore the, that person will be responded to and, and get some form of support. And I can go on and speak about that shortly, but... I think they really are, in terms of gateways, the ambulance service could be potentially a gateway for that person to get the appropriate support and the first steps in getting that support. Also, by creating connection and trust, because a lot of people who use drugs, I'm sure it won't be unfamiliar, but they're very much stigmatised. You know, they're seen as less than, they're seen as generally when people are talked about who use substances, it's usually in a derogatory manner and not usually painted in a positive light and I think the ambulance service again they have a, an opportunity to provide that person to show them that they're not judged that they are worthy of support and ultimately to really help them as I said in the first steps in terms of recovery and I think that's one thing I think myself Lauren and Julie have kind of maybe perhaps naively came into the role but the ambulance service don't tend to see people in recovery in terms of their drug and alcohol addiction we tend to just see people at their absolute worst you know they've like you said they've overdosed their hits been ruined they're they're angry you know you see people in the, the worst moments but where i come from is a recovery service a harm reduction service and you see somebody going through that and get the other end and you know really have fulfilled lives but I think there's a gap in the middle that the ambulance service don't see that you know you see the crisis um, and like you said sometimes the repeated crisis at the same addresses and there's a missing link so how do we get that person who's having repeated crises into support and that's what essentially our roles are doing and we're working with staff to try and to bridge that gap. Fantastic. You mentioned a couple of things that are happening at the moment, and, and there's a few bits in there that, that I certainly recognise and started to get tasked to jobs where folk have got 
things like take home naloxone and, and even basic things like having sharps bins in properties so that you've got a little bit of harm reduction there. What's out there at the moment? Yeah, so at the moment for the ambulance service, it's a national rollout of the take home naloxone. So anybody who is at risk of an overdose or witnessing an overdose should be provided a take home naloxone kit. And that's been really successful over the last three months within Scotland. The first month, I think we had around 40 kits provided in April. We had around 70 kits in last month, 80 kits. So as the rollout is continuing and more staff are trained, more kits are being provided. But it's not just for that person. As we said right at the start, that person will have supports of some sort. So it could be friends that are on the scene. It could be family members. So they can also be provided a take-home naloxone kit. We're also developing the non-fatal overdose pathways. So that person will have some form of support after they have experienced an overdose because we know that people who experience a non-fatal overdose have an increased chance of a fatal overdose and we want to avoid that as much as humanly possible. We also have a data analysis who's going to be joining our team which is going to be I think absolutely invaluable and like you said you know with your own experiences when you attend a house you've attended twice three times four times we're going to be able to pick that up quicker now because we get all these alerts in terms of when the has been administered or when there's been an incident with problematic drug use. So we're getting to see this kind of real-time data and highlight that this person is at risk of a fatal overdose. For me, that's really exciting because I think it's it's that gap in terms of that because, you know, the same in smaller areas, you might know the person more, but in a big city, it's going to be really difficult and, and probably unlikely that the same crew will go repeated times. So for me, that's a really exciting part of what we're doing just now. There's also non-fatal overdose assertive outreach teams so Glasgow is kind of leading the way with that it has its own kind of response unit who will see as much as humanly possible we'll see that person there and then in the north and the east there are already some services that exist so the ambulance service can refer or connect this person to the service and they'll be seen within 24 to 48 hours of their overdose and really just to check in and see what's going on and provide them with any form of support the person might not necessarily want support with their drug use at that time but it might be like you said it could be clean needles it could be a sharp spin it could be something to do with their housing it could be finances so it's a way of again that kind of foot in the door assertive right we're here to help you what is it that you need right now and again I think that's a really progressive way of doing it because I think one of the issues is that we seem to think that the answer to everybody who uses drugs is to get them into medication assisted treatment and I think there is a place for that for everyone at some point but not everyone's ready for that right at that point and um, some people it might just be a bit of harm reduction advice you know and and trying to get them to use drugs safer and to think differently about how they use drugs and I think just by saying to somebody you know you need to go on a prescription I don't always think that that works the person's got to be in the right place for that and I think we're at a point now where we know that's the case and we need to address that and, and provide that choice for that person. And I think the ambulance service are doing that by providing them with more information around what's available, more information around harm reduction, and as we said, support into these services. There's clearly a huge amount that's kind of happened over the last couple of years. It just mm-hmm. in terms of logistics, because a lot of the further flung crews and certainly amongst the basics responders of, of doctors and practice nurses we obviously not necessarily as, as looped in to what the ambulance service is doing. So how do we access this? 
I guess, referral pathways. And if I was attending a treble nine and somebody doesn't want transported to ED, how can I sort of link them into these services? Yeah, so that's the point we're at right now. It's taken a bit of time because obviously each area has different services that are available. Each area has different times of what services are available is a big thing as well because not everything is 24 hours. Some central belt areas or some areas in England, you know, they, they will be similar in some areas they might not have that so we're really having to work hard uh, in each of our areas to really find out okay what's going to work here because it's not going to be a one shoe fits all so Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire as I said they've got their set of outreach teams so they have a designed referral pathway specifically for that with a contact number that they would just phone and leave the details for and similar things are happening in the east and the west and we're, as we're looking at what areas are highest risk or overdoses that staff are attending, they're the areas that we're focusing on. But we're in post for two years, but by the end of that two-year period, there will be some form of service that we can link people into. So it's a little bit away, but it's going to get to that point where staff have that ready available, that they will have a number and be able to refer to a service. But just because of the sheer size of Scotland, it's going to be different in each area, so it'll take us a bit of time, but it's, it's in the pipeline. I mean, it's a, it's a huge problem trying to integrate everything nationally. So I guess the, the logistical answer is that you perhaps either speak to control room and see if they can loop you in, or I would imagine ringing one of the local EDs and just getting the local pathway from a referral hospital might be a solution until the whole national system goes live. Absolutely. For some areas, it can be direct. Anybody can refer. It can be self-refer. You know, crews can support that person to self-refer if they're aware of numbers. So if they contact control and they can give them numbers, they're able to phone with that person there and then. Obviously, they won't be there for the appointment, but can provide the person with the contact number or get them to phone while they're there. That's something you absolutely can do. Yeah, I think control's a good idea and just really having a knowledge of what services are available because each area does have services it's just about I suppose providing crews with that knowledge of what is available when they're available and how to access. Thinking about what you were saying earlier in terms of how drug users are often seen I would imagine that part of the psychology of that is because we feel that we can't do anything useful for them and therefore it's a frustration that we end up taking out on them so if we start to build a relationship where actually we can start to intervene early and we can start to bring some of those changes to the patient, then mm -hmm. that then changes our mental modelling and, and means that our approach becomes more positive. Absolutely, because at the moment we're trialling when a staff member has provided a take-home naloxone kit or if they've referred them to a service, we get that feedback and we can let that staff member know, you know, thanks to your referral or thanks to your providing this kit, this kit was used and saved their friend's life potentially, or you put this referral in and this person's now in treatment. You know, so it's given that staff member that, you know, like, oh, actually, you know what, this is worthwhile, like you said, and not just that going round and round in circles of we keep attending this person, but nothing changes. So we're hoping that that's the model going forward. It's, so far, it's, it's working well, and it doesn't leave staff feeling they could do more because that person might be refusing to go to hospital for various reasons. So now we can leave them a take-home naloxone kit. We can provide them with cards of services that are available and we can also try and refer them into some form of support. So good things are happening. The next question is what's coming down the line? What do you think is going to make a big difference? 
Personally, I think the drug consumption rooms would make a huge, huge difference. The evidence base for them throughout Europe is absolutely amazing and actually quite astounding. In terms of a public health perspective, it saves thousands of lives a year, but not only saves lives, it provides what we are trying to kind of, I suppose, replicate in the ways that we can. But where that person will go and inject their drugs, there's always somebody there to bring them round, but also it provides that connection and it also gets people into a form of support and I read a paper I can't remember the name of the author but it was two weeks ago and um, it was in Portugal in a drug consumption room there and 80% of the individuals who attended that service ended up in some form of treatment and support and that's what it's all about that's what we're trying to do I know the public health minister Angela Constance she is currently looking at the future drug policy and how that's going to look but I think there's huge changes and, and I think it will be around that kind of drug consumption or assisted treatment. There is also trials around prescribed medications such as heroin. And there's been pilots of that previously and again, quite successful. Another push from the government is looking at testing kits. Now, I think that's a massively important thing, particularly with the drugs that are being used currently. So what the person can essentially test what is in their drug, if it is what they've paid for, if it's what they've asked for. Because as I said, you know, at the moment, the amount of illicit drugs that are full of all sorts of different things, it's really, really dangerous for that person. And there have been trials around if people who use drugs would use those, those kits. And it's been trialled and most people who use them said they definitely would again because they know what they're taking and it's something that they lined with all sorts and they wouldn't buy from that drug dealer again and I think that's another thing that we will see more of and I'm more around the, the harm reduction aspect I think it's just changing attitudes which obviously is going to take a very long time but that people have used drugs for hundreds of years and people are going to continue to use drugs and we have to accept that I think as a society as a government worldwide you know that's a fact so instead of chastising, instead of stigmatising and instead of discriminating, we have to work with that person. We have to try and get people to use drugs safely and then ultimately try and connect them to the support that they need. There's also a lot of work around why people use drugs. So, for instance, looking at studies around adverse childhood experiences. So people who may have used drugs may have experienced some form of trauma. So there's been a lot of work in terms of looking at why people use drugs and continue to use drugs which is really good to see because I think nobody wakes up and just thinks oh, I'm going to be a drug user today it doesn't happen but I think we've got to educate people and change that culture and small steps are and in place to do that and I think going forward that's what we'll see more of. That's really interesting and certainly anecdotally I've seen the drug testing kits at a few festivals and there seems to be significant uptake amongst people who are keen for the hit but do want to have a degree of control over what it is they're taking and I guess it's that management of the unknown mm -hmm. it seems that whenever there's purer batches of whether it be benzo or opiate that is coming through that's when we see the spike in deaths yeah yep definitely and I think you know, particularly in the remote and rural areas, that's challenging. You know, times when people leave prison, 
when tolerance is low, your islands in Scotland, certainly with the statistics of drug-related deaths or overdoses, that tends to be exactly like you said, you know, if there's been a bad batch or they've managed to get a batch in Western Isles or Orkney, Shetland, and that person hasn't used for a significant amount of time, then that's when overdoses happen because they haven't had that continuous access to drugs. And sometimes people will just take whatever they can get because it's part of the addiction. So I think it's definitely, in my eyes, it's a positive thing. And like you said, it's something that they use at, at festivals and that might be recreationally for a weekend, but people are using drugs every single day. So these are the people that we need to try and help and support and target, really. There's clearly you say, there's a huge amount going on to try and break some of these cycles and break some of the cognition that exists in our mindsets. Mary, we've been asking all of our presenters to give us three top tips. And I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of things that you want basics responders to take away to maybe integrate into their own practice. I think the first one is around harm reduction in terms of, I know there's a viewpoint, so things like the drug consumption rooms, things like take home naloxone, things like needle exchange, People think, oh, aren't we just encouraging drug use? But harm reduction is not about encouraging drug use. People are going to use, so it's about helping people to do it in a safe way. So for me, that's probably my my first message. And harm reduction is a good choice for somebody who might not be at the stage for medication. We should be offering them support in other ways, for example, harm reduction. So we don't just leave somebody with, oh, well, they're never going to change or they don't want to engage. That person if they are using, there's things we can do to support them, and that's through harm reduction. So that would be my first point. My second point, I think, is really about understanding why somebody might use substances, to have a think about the importance of our use of language, and really, hopefully, to think about what services are available in all of our areas. Because what all that does is if we provide ourselves with knowledge and understanding, that is going to help people to trust healthcare professionals it's going to help people into services and ultimately into recovery and preventable drug-related deaths and my third point is take home naloxone saves lives I will preach that forever and this is what one of my patients said to me many years ago and it's always stuck with me and it's you can't recover if you're dead and the first point in terms of what I've just said around the harm reduction work and, and getting people into services, we need to keep people alive so we can do that. And take home naloxone does that. If somebody does have a kit, what I will always say is carry it with you. There's no point having a kit if it's just going to be in a drawer. We need to be carrying it all times so that we are ready to respond. Even when we're off shift, I've administered naloxone a number of times, even when I'm off shift. But if we have a kit, don't just keep it in a cupboard, keep it on you because it could be enough to, to keep somebody alive and get them into recovery. Mary, that's absolutely fantastic and powerful words that you can't recover if you're dead. And I guess that kind of emphasises our role in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's both to provide that initial life-saving treatment, but also then to make sure that we follow it up and have that duty of care to get the patient to a better place, whether that's cognitively or, or physically. Absolutely. Mary, thank you so much for coming on to chat to us. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.